Join me on today's episode where we'll be discussing our broken medical system, what that means and why it even matters to you. You won't want to miss today's episode because I'll be revealing how a broken medical system that focuses only on sickness is leaving gaps in your wellness care that can come back to bite you in the butt later on. I'll also be discussing what you can do to put measures in place to protect yourself. Here at the Optimal CEO Podcast, we help CEO entrepreneurs who love taking ownership of their wellness journey because they know it's their most prized investment. And when their state of wellness is at its peak, their income soars. We want to help relieve CEO entrepreneurs from the pressure of unnecessary health exposure so they can be highly focused on growing their business and physically optimized for the journey so they can enjoy getting there. Welcome to today's episode. Noted Chinese entrepreneur, business magnate, and philanthropist Jack Ma was recently quoted as saying, if you put bananas and money in front of monkeys, monkeys will choose bananas because monkeys do not know that money can buy a lot of bananas. He goes on to correlate this with human behavior in relationship to their health. He's saying, in reality, if you put money and health in front of people, people tend to choose money because too many people do not know that health can bring more money. So why do we choose money over health? Uh, recently I had the distinct pleasure of being able to speak with a group of high-level entrepreneurs over the course of about four days. Most everyone was mid six figures to high seven figures and some even eight figures in gross revenue in their respective businesses. Conversation after conversation uh, revealed that about 40% were interested in taking care of their health, about another 30% were somewhat interested in taking care of their health, and around 30% more were totally clueless when it came to their health and wellness. Each of these groups had two things in common. They don't trust the modern medical system and they are driven to success. In fact, one of the highest income earners in the group, whose business grosses in the eight figures, told me, I don't trust white coats. And most of the people in my friend group, other millionaires like me, don't trust white coats either. I asked him why. He went on to explain, and I quote, it's a model that doesn't work. It doesn't give answers and at best responds reactively versus proactively. Over the course of the four days I spent with this amazing group of inspiring individuals, I gained a lot of insight into their views of healthcare as we know it. However, millionaires aren't in this boat alone. People from all walks of life are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They are quickly concluding that sickness care does not have all the answers, and I couldn't agree more. Sickness care is, is a failing model. We only have to look at the numbers to see that this is true. The United States ranks in the top three of the most high spending countries when it comes to sickness care, yet we rank in the bottom 
uh, 100 when it comes to health outcomes. Why is there such a disconnect? Well, I've got some theories. Firstly, I think that sickness care is a system that is regulated to death. And I'm not just talking about government regulations. In fact, government regulations is the least of our worries. When I say the phrase regulated to death, what I'm talking about is insurance companies and big pharma. You see, insurance companies tend to control every aspect of healthcare in some form or fashion. Uh, when's the last time that you got a prior authorization for something that, that you needed? Or you know somebody that had to get a prior authorization for something that they needed? Better yet, have you known someone who needed a medical procedure and couldn't get it approved because insurance denied it? They wanted to make them jump through other hoops uh, in order to get to the place where they actually needed the surgery that they had to have. And folks, this is only the tip of the iceberg. You see, here's how the system works. And, and take it from me, I'm, I'm an in, a former insider. You know, I've been out of this loop for about eight years, but when I was in the throes of traditional medical practice, I learned all these things, and I want to share them with you. You see, there's a coding system um, that is used to make diagnoses in the sickness care model we live under today. If you don't meet the exact criteria to be labeled with the right procedural code or an office visit code or a diagnostic code, then you simply fall through the cracks. But it gets even better. If you don't meet the sickness care model's criteria for being labeled, then you're told there's nothing wrong. But wait, there's more. What if I told you that the sickness care model's way of putting you into the right code categories was decided by panels of medical professionals who worked for pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies, and they were the ones who came up with these categories and how to put people into them? And what if I told you that Big Pharma's tentacles reached so deeply into these panels that treatment algorithms were biased to promote the agendas and bottom lines of the big pharma companies. And what if I told you that big pharma, insurance companies, and retail pharmacies all cut side deals with each other's to protect uh, with each other to protect each other's bottom lines? It sounds like conspiracy theory, doesn't it? Well, I challenge you that it's not conspiracy theory. It's really conspiracy reality. You see, I'm a conspiracy realist. If we follow the money, we see just how deep the rabbit hole goes. And it's a dark and very deep abyss. To prove my point, I want to give you a few examples. So I'm going to first share with you something that happens to many medical providers, thousands of medical providers every single day across this country. They get a fax in on their fax machine and it reads something like this XYZ medication is not covered on this patient's formulary we suggest that you switch this patient to XYZ medication B or XYZ medication C uh, as as an alternative here's the sad truth guys uh, they, they give you all this legal ease that you can fill out a prior authorization and you can make your appeal and see if you can get this approved. But this is getting harder and harder to do. 
Healthcare providers are so inundated with paperwork, it's pitiful. Um, we get swamped by this level of paperwork saying, hey, you've got your patient on this medication and we're not going to pay for that. We'll only pay for these two medications. And by the way, you need to fill out a prior authorization and jump through the hoops just so that we won't get sued by the patient and we can say we did everything we tried, we, we could to get their medication for them. Here's the, here's the other saddest, uh, the saddest part about the whole thing. The cost of the medication that was originally prescribed is often 10 times lower than the medication that they want to pay for. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me scratch my head and cock my head sideways and go, huh? I mean, it just doesn't add up. Why would an insurance company send a medical provider a letter saying, we don't want to pay for that $15 medication, we want you to change the prescription to a $150 medication. There's a huge disconnect here. Why would an insurance company want to do that? It's the medication that was originally chosen was probably actually more effective than the one that they're recommending. In fact, in one particular case, I have had a letter come across my desk just two days ago. And in this particular case, the medication that they were wanting to substitute, that they said the insurance would pay for, which by the way, was actually about 10 times higher in cost than the one I had, uh, had originally written. That the, the crazy thing was, is that it had been recalled by the FDA numerous times due to quality control issues in the manufacturing process. Why is that? To me, it just makes no sense. And I hope it's coming through to you that it, sh it makes no sense either. It shouldn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense to anybody. But for some reason, that's the system that we're living in. Here's another example. So I, I have the great fortune of working with people from all walks of life, um, men and women, uh, business professionals, and they come in and they know things aren't quite right, but uh, they don't know exactly what's going on. They've been to this doctor and that doctor and uh, this clinic and that clinic and this specialist and that specialist, and nobody can seem to connect the dots for them. And um, there's a condition called PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. Now, I don't want to digress too much here. It's, it's a horribly named disorder because it has very little to do with ovaries at all and has everything to do with insulin resistance. So it's an endocrine disorder that affects women. And you see when insulin goes high, it lowers a hormone called sex hormone bonding globulin or SHBG. The problem with that is when insulin is up, SHBG is down, testosterone goes through the roof and estrogen typically goes through the roof. Progesterone comes down and a female starts having all kinds of problems. They have problems with their, their periods, their menses. They have problems with their mood and PMS. They have problems with um, uh, facial hair and hair thinning, and the list goes on and on and on. The problem in the United States is, is that there's no big pharmaceutical drug to treat it. Therefore, in the United States, if you care to guess what our rates of diagnosing PCOS are, it'd probably be shocking to you. It's less than 3% of the population. They just recently increased it last year to 5%, and I'm like, yeah, finally somebody's making some headway here. But 
when you compare us to other countries, and I'm literally talking about every other country in the world, the rates of PCOS in undeveloped and developed countries is between 25 and 30 percent of women of childbearing age. That's a, a young girl who started having her period all the way up to menopause. That's a long age range, 25 to 30 percent, and we're recognizing it at rates of three to five percent. Again, a huge disconnect. And why? Well, I can only imagine that it has to do with the fact that there's no magic bullet put out by a big pharmaceutical company to actually treat this. So that's one issue. Another issue is that um, prostate cancer. Let's talk about prostate cancer. So prostate cancer is one of those things that um, men are scared of. Uh, men typically are pretty hard-headed in that they don't follow up with medical care until it's too late. Um, so they're more advanced in their diagnoses a lot of time. But if a man goes to um, get his uh, annual lab work drawn, semi-annually, I don't know, uh, every couple of years, every few years, uh, typically they check a PSA or prostate-specific antigen. And when they check that, let's say it comes back slightly elevated and it's not above 4.0. And I know these are random numbers to you, but just bear with me here just a minute. I'm going to explain it to you. Um, at that point, if it's below 4.0, most primary care doctors, internal medicine uh, uh, medical providers, um, even specialists will actually say, ah, there's nothing to worry about it. Let's uh, repeat it in a year. Some, if they're really diligent, they'll say, let's repeat it in six months. Now, at that point, if I've got a patient that's hovering, you know, in the 3.5 to 4.5 range, yeah, okay, so it's on the high end of the curve. It's considered, quote unquote, normal. But one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to check a uh, percent free PSA. Percent free PSA is actually going to tell me in a correlation whether or not there, there's a correlation between what's going on with the PSA and just prostate enlargement, or there's a correlation with cancer. And it's actually a little bit more detailed than that. You need to check these over the course of uh, about every 30 days for the next 90 days. Uh, but the bottom line is you can actually see uh, from general lab work whether or not this is heading in the direction of looking like cancer or this is heading in the direction of looking like it's not cancer. Anyway, let's say for just for example's sake that a man actually comes back and his prostate when he follows up again is say five and a half or six or six and a half or seven. That gets the attention of everybody. At that point, this is what they're going to do. They're going to take that man in to the specialist. The specialist, usually it's a urologist. The urologist is going to do a biopsy. Now that biopsy is done with a very crude instrument. Um, it's a punch biopsy. So you can imagine this uh, instrument that has uh, about 16 to 32 needles attached to it. And they literally just punch through the intestinal wall into the prostate or the rectal wall into the prostate and um, take core samples out of the prostate. That sounds crude. Well, <laughs> quite frankly, it should. Because that particular diagnostic treatment dates back to, drumroll please, 1941. Yes, that treatment dates back to the 1940s. And 
it's probably the most archaic thing we can do to a man. Uh, we set him up for infection at that point. We set him up for uh, infection in his bloodstream, infection in his prostate, infection in his bladder, just by punching those holes through there. No matter how clean you try to get it, let's face it, it's the rectal vault. Um, that's where our feces are. You can't really get it that clean. And we're setting people up for these infections. Plus, guess what happens? Those 16 needles that go in and take those tissue samples out of the prostate, there's blank spaces in between. So if that prostate cancer tumor just happens to be lying in one of those places that was not punched, or let's say the tumor was actually below where the needle depth was when it took that core sample, that person's going to be told, uh, all, your, all your pathology reports came back and showed that you had no cancer, Bob. Everything's perfectly fine. Go live your life another year and let's check that PSA, that, that lab work in another year. Well, guess what? Bob comes in in another year. Bob's PSA has gone up. And guess what they're going to do? You guessed it. They're going to repeat that punch biopsy again. And I've known patients that have had two, three, or four punch biopsies and been negative. And then they get the fifth one done, and they're in stage four prostate cancer. And everybody's kind of scratching their heads, wondering how this happened. You see, about six years ago, they changed the guidelines. And they said, if a man has an elevated PSA, and it looks like you're worried about cancer, insurance companies will pay for an MRI. Uh, that's magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging. And they'll pay for an MRI of the prostate, which is very diagnostic for prostate cancer, by the way. No need to do a punch biopsy. No need to worry about missing that cancer. Um, let's just simply do the imaging and see whether or not it's there. They've actually stepped the game up, and there's actually an MRI machine called the Tesla, T-E-S-L-A-3, like the number three, Tesla 3 MRI. Well, guess what else they've done? They've actually been able to, while the MRI machine is running, they identify that there's a tumor there. They go ahead while the MRI machine is running and they actually put a scope in and a needle directly to that tumor while the MRI machine is running. They go directly to the center of that tumor. They take a sample, they pull back out, and they look at it under the microscope. They diagnose it as cancer all before it reaches stage four levels. And then they go back in the same route with a little scope and an instrument that has a laser attached to it, and they zap that tumor. This is the crazy part of medicine that I don't understand. And I think I know why, and I'm gonna to talk to you about it here in just a second. The crazy part is, is that this is hugely way more diagnostic than a punch biopsy, which by the way, is only about 40% sensitive, specific and sensitive for prostate cancer. A, a, an MRI, Tesla 3 MRI with guided needle biopsy is actually running in the 92 plus percent range of diagnostically effective in determining cancer. And we can actually treat it with a laser and zap the tumor with a laser. Why is this important, you ask? Here's why it's important. Because if a man has his prostate removed because he has prostate cancer, more than likely he's going to spend the rest of his life wearing a Depends because he now has urinary incontinence. And he's going to spend the rest of his life uh, impotent 
no longer able to have sex. Now, does that change a man's life? Well, if, if you have clients like I do who've been diagnosed with that prostate cancer at age 46, 47, or 54, 55, they have a lot of life left to live. And to live that length of your life with incontinence and having to wear depends or impotence or both, uh, simply kind of archaic when we have other options available. You know, my goal is to get the word out about functional medicine, integrative medicine, alternative medicine, but more than that, it's about performance medicine. It's about cutting edge treatment. This therapy has been out now for at least six years, yet we don't hear anything about it. I'm hoping that by telling you this, we're actually going to save somebody's life. I'm hoping that by telling you this, we're actually going to point you in the right direction. And hopefully somebody you love, or maybe you're the one listening here, is able to avoid going through the trauma of a condition like polycystic ovary, ovary syndrome. Because I, what I didn't tell you a minute ago is if PCOS is left untreated, you're almost guaranteed to develop type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol issues hypertension, and the list goes on and on and on, cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, so on and so forth. So is it in our best interest to identify these things early and treat them and get them out of the way and just lay that worry to rest so we don't have to worry about it? You better believe it is. Is it in the vested interest of some pharmaceutical companies to sell a drug for a related disorder like high cholesterol or type 2 diabetes or hypertension or dementia of some kind. Yeah, I think unfortunately economics speak for themselves. And I think that we're in this stage in history where greed unfortunately is probably killing people. And, and I'm not saying this lightly, I'm not saying this conspiratorially, but if we can change somebody's life so they don't have to deal with PCOS, if we can change somebody's life uh, simply with knowledge, so they don't have to suffer the consequences of prostate cancer, prostate removal and incontinence and impotence for the rest of their life. If we can do that, then I've done, I've done my job. And that's all I ask. I want people to be proactive. I want people to be educated. I think the best thing you can do is become an avid reader of anything health and wellness. Become an avid reader of cutting edge medical therapies. Uh, in case you're wondering uh, where I refer my clients to who have a prostate cancer diagnosis, and we'll actually do the imaging locally. Um, I actually, we have one Tesla 3 MRI machine here in our state. They're, they're so stinking expensive. Uh, there are only a handful of these machines uh, across the United States. Uh, but we get that done locally, the imaging done locally. We do the laser procedure in, um, in California at Desert Imaging, uh, DMI, Desert Medical Imaging. Uh, so if you know of somebody that needs help in that area, please pass that information along. Um, even if they've already had prostate cancer, had their prostate removed, um, it's still good to go ahead and get that advanced imaging so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, everything's been done that we possibly can and we're keeping an eye on things. Um, but the bottom line is our system is broken. It's largely messed up. And um, there are things that we can do 
proactively as health consumers, as wellness consumers, to take care of these things. One thing I want you to start doing if you don't do anything else is increase the amount of water that you drink. I tell my clients all the time, if you're female, you need to drink three liters of water a day. If you're male, you need to drink four liters of water a day. Here's the most miraculous thing. Typically, your natural thirst will kick in. Uh, if, if you say, well, uh, Brian, I don't have a thirst for water. The reason you don't have a thirst for water is because your natural thirst drive has been cut off because your body's in conservation mode and it thinks you're in a desert and it thinks you're starving to death for water. So therefore, it's going to cut your demand for water down. So worst thing that can happen to your body, it's actually a horrible state to be in. Uh, the best thing you can do for yourself is hydrate. And you may feel like you're forcing yourself in the beginning, but then it'll get better. And actually, females will tell me, actually, I crave more than three liters of water a day. Great, drink it. Guys will tell me I crave more than four liters of water a day. Great, drink it. That's probably the single-handedly best thing you can do for your body is hydrate your body. Um, all that being said, um, aside from hydration, educate, 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 be a constant learner, question everything. Uh, I even want you to question me. Check the, check the facts out. Uh, if you're not questioning and you're just blindly trusting uh, a medical provider and going forward in your day-to-day -day life, um, it's not a horrible thing, but sometimes it's not the best thing. And uh, there are truly some great medical professionals out, here, out there who don't practice the way uh, me and uh, you know, a handful of other people do around the country. And there's certainly nothing wrong with what they do. But I'm just saying, sometimes it's better to get as many answers as you possibly can. And to question, just ask questions. And if, if somebody gets defensive when you ask a question, then you have to ask yourself, maybe this person is really not the right person uh, to, be, to be working with me. Uh, maybe I'm not in the best place. Maybe I need to find somebody else. Um, anyway, that's all I've got for today. Um, I hope you were able to understand uh, uh, just some aspects of our broken medical system. Trust me when I say the rabbit hole goes way deeper. It goes way deeper. Uh, in this limited space, I'm only able to touch on just some, some small aspects of that. But I wanted to hit on two passion projects of mine, and it, that's getting awareness out about PCOS, and that's getting awareness out about prostate cancer. Uh, those two things uh, have affected uh, me and my family uh, personally, and, um, and, and in my friend group personally, and it's so avoidable. Everything is so avoidable. So anyway, I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful day. And thanks for joining me on the Optimal CEO podcast. We'll talk to you next time and to the best of your health. I'd like to personally thank you for listening to this episode of the Optimal CEO podcast. I hope you found today's podcast informative and helpful on your personal optimization journey. You see, we love our Optimal CEO entrepreneurs, and thanks to people like you, the Optimal CEO community is growing. You can help us with that continued growth by giving us a like, sharing this podcast with your friends, or subscribing to our podcast feed. This is Dr. Brian Brown. Here's to you being the most physically optimized CEO entrepreneur possible, so you can have an even bigger impact on the world through your business. See you next time, and thanks again for listening.